0: Hey, where is this? Okay, hey everybody, how are you? Welcome to the Other People Show. My name is Brad Listy and I'm in Los Angeles. Thanks for listening to the program. Today my guest is Ingrid Rojas Contreras, author of a new memoir called The Man Who Could Move Clouds.
1: And the way that stories can be like medicine is something that I that I do believe and each time that I've written a book I think that I've arrived somewhere better I just I really believe in the way that stories can guide us into thought into feeling into just being and how that can be like an investigation or that can be like healing or that can be you know going deep somewhere so I do I do think of it that
0: way too. All right, that was Ingrid Rojas Contreras. Her new memoir, The Man Who Could Move Clouds, is available now from Doubleday. I spoke with Ingrid Rojas Contreras after the publication of her debut novel, Fruit of the Drunken Tree, a few years ago. That book was the silver medal winner in First Fiction, from the California Book Awards, and it was also a New York Times editor's choice. My conversation with Ingrid is coming up in just a couple of minutes. Today's program is brought to you by Vintage Books, home to bold new voices in literature that push boundaries and expand perspectives. Vintage is proud to offer a new novel by Bud Smith called Teenager. It's named one of NPR's best books of 2022, one of Lit Hub's most anticipated books of the year. Teenager is electric, says the Atticus Review. It is damaging and dangerous and stunning. This is a novel about two teenagers in love and insane as they journey across the United States. On a Bonnie and Clyde-like adventure, pursuing a warped American dream. That's Teenager by Bud Smith. It's out there now from Vintage. Go get your copy. You can also listen to my conversations with Bud. He's been on this show two or three times. So my guest today is Ingrid Rojas-Contreras author of the new memoir, the critically acclaimed new memoir, The Man Who Could Move Clouds. that is out there now from Doubleday in a beautiful hardcover edition. The Man Who Could Move Clouds is a remarkable book that covers a lot of ground. And as I was reading it, I found myself admiring the level of commitment and hard work that went into it. And you'll hear me say as much to Ingrid in the conversation. There's a lot in this book. There's cultural history, there's personal history, there's mystery, (laughs) there's, uh, you know, geographical distance covered in multiple directions. It's just a lot. A lot has happened in Ingrid's life. And in this book, she has created an enduring testimony to if not all of it, quite a lot of it, and has also created a riveting narrative that has elements of mystery and magic and heartbreak and tragedy and trauma, all the stuff of life. But it was also for me, a really fascinating look into Colombia. Colombian culture, in particular, indigenous culture within Colombian culture, mestizo traditions, and a lot of the tragedies and cultural complexities that exist within Colombia in recent history in particular. So I love it when a book does that. I love it when a book shows me new places and makes me think in new ways and kind of encounter the world at a different angle. And I just loved talking with Ingrid. This is the, as I said, the second time she's been on the program. She first appeared a few years ago, and she's now back celebrating this book. We left off in our first conversation by talking about this book, and now here it is. So without any further preamble, let's get to my talk with Ingrid Rojas Contreras. One more time, her new memoir is called The Man Who Could Move Clouds. I grew up with
1: hearing stories about my family, and you know, hearing stories about my grandfather. And there were stories that I loved as a kid, um, but I was always just forbidden to tell anybody else about it. And they were, you know, there, there were stories about how he could move clouds, or stories about how, you know, he was a, a curandero.
0: What uh, is it? What is a curandero for people who are? Listening and don't have context. Yeah, so
1: the so the word curandero means healer, and it's it's kind of like a mestizo medicine man. So someone who can has a lot of plant knowledge, sees sees people who maybe have like epilepsy, or maybe have fevers, or maybe have like a broken heart, or maybe have mental instabilities, and so just someone who just helps with all of that and he would heal through through plants or he would heal through prayer or sometimes he would heal through dreams where he would he would try to heal someone through his dreams and and there were stories that i loved and my mother just always said like never share these with anyone and i i think for her she had grown up with people like judging her for that and you know, at some point, like when when people found out that she was a curandera and then because she also became a curandera and she was kind of open about it that, uh, you know, my dad lost a job or, you know, they would, they would just kind of be disinvited from social functions. And so there was this layer of judgment that came with it. So I think she was always, it came from this place of maybe trying to, to protect me from that. And I, 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 under, I understand that and I, and I think that um, for me, as I you know, started to be interested in the story and then started to be kind of enmeshed with it or you know, started to have kind of like a life where I just needed to tell the story in order to live my life well, that it was just like a very hard thing because I, I really felt that I had to write the book. And she's and she said, "If you don't, if you write this book, I will never talk to you again." So I just really didn't know what to do about that.
0: Well, clearly you wrote the book.
1: I wrote the book. I she was like upset at me for a, a long time and just uh, wouldn't answer my phone calls. I called my my dad, or I was just like calling their house, and then finally my dad picked up. And he, the, the, the first thing that he said to me was, like, what have you done? <laughs> so I just, you know, so I just, like, knew that it was, like, very serious what I had done. And I I just, like, really didn't know. I, I, I really felt that I had to write this book. And I also didn't want to lose the relationship with my mother. So it was just, like, a very hard place to be in. She finally had a, a dream some weeks later where... My grandfather, who had been dead for, you know, 20-some years at that point, came to her in a dream and said, I want this story to be told. And so if it hadn't been for that dream, then I don't know what would have happened. But after that dream, she called me and she said, I have something for that book that you're working on, is what she said, <laughs> after we hadn't been talking for, like, a long time. And the what she said was that there had been... In that week, like two of my aunts and then my mom had a shared dream where it's like the you know, they each like independently dreamt the same thing and called each other and they were like, Oh my god, I just had this dream and then my mom was like, I just had the same dream and it happened like three times, or like with three of them. And the dream was that my grandfather was saying, I want my remains to be disinterred. I want them to be moved.
0: That's a very specific and, dream. That's not like yeah. a that's not a casual dream.
1: It's not a casual dream. It's super specific. And because it was so specific and it happened to three of them, we, we said, okay, like we, this means that we must go and we must do this.
0: Well, I was going to say, and, cause like in the yeah. book, you know, you, you really, there's a lot of currency in your family. And I think among curanderos and curanderos uh, when it comes to information received in dreams, like that stuff is taken s- seriously.
1: Yes. Yeah. And I don't know. I mean, what would happen to you if if three people in your family had the same specific dream and it was kind of a direction? Would you follow it?
0: I think I would be inclined. Yeah, I I do. I just, the thing is, is that this doesn't happen in my family. And we're going to, we're going to get to, yeah, we're going to get to my feelings of inferiority that I experienced. (laughs) That's because my complete lack of magic, but I want to rewind a little bit because this, you know, you've kind of set up at least some of the basics of your book. Again, it covers a lot. So it's, it's not the whole thing, but it gives you, it gives listeners, you know, a little bit of context. But I want to rewind to the last time you were here. We talked uh, about the fruit of the drunken tree and this was pre-COVID. So I think we were, you know, we were here in person Yeah, and we touched upon this book that you've just published i remember distinctly you telling me uh, kind of like you know some broad stroke stuff about what the book was going to entail and then when you left my house you asked for directions to a nearby cemetery (laughs) that was a first for me i was like okay i'll tell you and then it's like kind of like in a you know a sketchy uh, area of hollywood i was like should i walk her to the cemetery is this (laughs) I didn't know what to do, but I was like, okay, she's going to go walk, like, wander around the cemetery after the conversation. <laughs> I've put her in a funereal state of mind by uh, the fact of my mere presence. But, you know, we touched upon it, and I think you had told me about amnesia and about mm-hmm. this, uh, you know, episode of amnesia that you had experienced uh, after suffering a bike accident. In Chicago, um, I will let you talk about that, but I also want to interject that this spring, I had a bike accident and broke my kneecap, so oh God, yeah, I did not have amnesia though, so I'm not oh yeah, I'm not uh, the
1: kneecap though that's so I'm so sorry that's so painful
0: yeah, it was painful, it was pain and uh. it was and it was silly too, because I was like not I was on an easy bike ride. My listeners have heard me complain mm. about this mm. you know interminably, so I will try to. <laughs> try to stop myself but anyway i'm getting better and i just want you to tell listeners about this accident and this amnesia because it really sets into motion a lot of the narrative and it connects you to the to your family history and your family narrative in a deep way
1: yeah i i had an accident in in chicago where i was i was biking and someone like opened the Car, the car door into the bike lane and it just crashed. I still think of that as like the happy it was just like such a happy moment to be without a memory and to have amnesia. It, it was like it was an experience of almost being bodiless. It was an experience of almost kind of being disconnected from everything but and I know that that sounds scary but it there was like such a lightness and such a freedom to that when my memories returned which was eight weeks later i i remember that my mother had also had an accident where she lost her memory and for her what happened was that when she was uh when she was young girl her and two cousins like went to see this empty well and she was looking down and then she fell into the well and it i've i've you know it's the, everything in this book is is wild because it all sounds a little bit fairy tale like, you know, like the empty well and you like fall into it and in the fall and you have this accident. But so she she went into a coma, and she lost her memory. Some months later, when she recovered her memory, which yeah maybe like half a year later, she she opened her eyes so she uh, you know started to become aware of her surroundings and could see ghosts and started to hear voices. And so, you know, my my grandfather being a curandero, having some of these gifts as well, the family said that my mother had inherited those things through this accident and through this fall in the, you know, in the well and like losing her memory. So from that point on, she became a curandera, and then my grandfather started to teach her things. So, you know, you know, flash forward to when I had my accident in, in 2007, when my family heard about it, and they heard that I had amnesia, they just got really excited about it. because <laughs> they, they were like, uh, yeah, they were just like excited to see like, what would happen or if you know, like if I if this meant that I was going to receive something. And I didn't, you know, I didn't come back with any kind of supernatural ability at all. And yeah, my family was like, Some- like, I don't know how you messed this up, but you messed this up. <laughs> there was, you know, what are the odds of an accident happen- happening? You lose your memory. And then like, you know, you missed the opportunity of, you know, somehow through that journey to kind of come back with something. So I I think for me that that did kind of like connect me to the to the stories of my family, where before I hadn't felt a connection to them, it was, you know, for me, like the stories of the family were just mainly my grandfather and my mother. And so, you know, losing my memory, and then having kind of like a connection to my mother in that way, and to the lineage in that way, really made the book possible. I don't know how I don't know how else I would have written it. I really, I really think that Amisha was just so necessary for me to be able to to write this book.
0: Okay, so couple things. First of all, I believe that when you suffered your accident, you were biking to purchase a Vera Wang dress. <laughs> yes. <laughs> this is, I mean, this is like a, a fun twist in the story, but. What kind of gave me the chills when I was reading is that your mother had found out about this dress and had uh, urged you not to buy it, like strenuously yeah. urging you. She, she said,
1: "It's it, this 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 dress will make you a widow," is what she said. Something that this dress has like bad, you know, energy connected to it. Do not get this dress. And but I loved. It was such a beautiful dress. I still have it. It's such a beautiful dress that I just didn't listen. I was like, I'm sure it's fine.
0: You should do all your book events in that dress. (laughs) (laughs) I agree. That's crazy though. I mean, you know, like it just kind of gave me, you know, gave me the chills when I read that. And yet you still bought the dress.
1: I still bought the dress. The other interesting thing is that during Amnesia, so I have no conception of who I am. I don't remember my name. I don't know what country I am from. I don't just don't know anything. The only thing that I remembered was the dress which is wild, but I I could like very clearly just remember the dress and the color and the cut. And there during amnesia there was this kind of obsession with finding the dress and somehow you know finding clues so that I could find where the dress was and how to pick it up because I had dropped it off at a at a seamstress.
0: So when you had this accident the person who like i think they call it dooring someone the person who doored yeah. you tried to help you and you sort of brushed him off did you get back on your bike and ride away or did you walk I away did. I, I
1: did i mean like I, this I is got a, on
0: the- <laughs> yeah this is a serious head injury <laughs> um a question that i had when i was reading was do you do you have a sense of what the medical diagnosis was for your brain injury
1: i think that they that they feared that I was having some, that my brain was swelling. And I think when they took the x-ray that they weren't completely sure if it was affecting any of my yeah, brain motor skills. Um, and they, the doctor asked me if I was remembering everything correctly or if anything was strange and I I think of that at that point I had decided that Amnesia was such a wonderful place to live in that I just <laughs> wanted to stay there forever. And so I just looked at the doctor straight in the eye and I was like, "No, everything is fine. Like I everything is normal." So um,
0: there's something there's something kind of hilarious and heartbreaking <laughs> about your love of amnesia. And I think also convincing. I I can understand how to have your memory wiped would be a blissful place to be. Like this you know, you, I think you even say it in the book, like ignorance actually is bliss. You know, yeah. And I think in particular with somebody who has trauma in her past, most of us have some form of trauma in our past if we live long enough. But you had a particularly difficult um, experience in childhood and particularly tied to fleeing Colombia. There's just a lot going on. And so to suddenly yeah. and, and you're, you know, integrating into a new country. And to suddenly be removed of all of that baggage, I can imagine, must have felt very liberating. And I want to read something that you wrote in the book about this. And I think I've compressed a little bit. But you say, I recalled that I was supposed to be hiding who I was. I saw that what I had construed from mommy's call for secrecy was shame. What I understood was that there was some ineffable wrong to what we were. But as memory returned, though I could recall the shape and weight of this shame, the sting of it was gone. I lost the impulse to hide that I was a brown woman born of a brown woman born of a poor man who said he had the power to move clouds. Yeah. So has the shame or the, the, the loss of the sting has it remained? Like, was that a permanent shift for you?
1: It was a permanent shift. And I think, you know, when I say that amnesia was necessary for the writing of this book, this is exactly what I mean. Because, yeah, with with my mother's kind of um, insistence that I kind of stay quiet about this or that I keep these these stories to just to ourselves, to our circle, that, yeah, subconsciously, I had just understood that it meant that you know there's if we're hiding there's something shameful about it that there's and so I that's how I felt for my whole life and when I when I when my memory started to return like the the gift of it is that they came out of order so I I remembered things out of order and the by the time I that i had you know recalled this this shame that i felt or this this even the my mother saying like don't tell anybody about this i i felt that i had already become a person so it's almost like i had made a new foundation for who i was from the memories that just came back at the time which had to do with like childhood and they had to do with one of the earliest memories that i had was like the plot of moby dick for some reason it's like one one of the things that just came back so I just I kind of became a new person and then by the time that this memory of my mother saying like do not tell this story to anybody it was too late I didn't know how to fit it and I had already kind of formed this relationship to the stories of my grandfather and my mother and they were, were kind of like very kind of admiring and there was like awe in it and there was a sense of openness and just just a deep sense of connection to them. So that when this shame part came, it just didn't, I couldn't fit it anywhere. And so it was the gift of amnesia was me, you know, being able to just discard that completely. And it's, I just don't even remember. I, you know, intellectually, I remember feeling that way. But the feeling of it is just, it's just nowhere to be found now. So I just lost that completely through through amnesia. But I, I think that that's what allowed me to write the book.
0: Well, there are people out there, I fear, who are now going to be like banging their heads against the wall, trying to induce amnesia. (laughs) You're making this sound great.
1: (laughs) It's, I mean, it's, it's such a, it's such a wild thing because it just, it depends on like where you hit your head and all things of, all all sorts of things can happen. Like you can lose, you can keep like the, the memory of your past and then lose your ability to make memories in the present is, Mm -hmm. is one thing that can happen. Um. Or you can lose uh, your memory of speech, and so then you have to like relearn uh, language, and you have to like you know, relearn how to do things. So, yeah, for me and my mom to have hit our heads in this in the in a very similar way, where we just kind of like lost the past, and that was all that we lost, is really strange and just wild that it happened.
0: Yeah, that's um, not the kind of thing that usually happens twice in a in an immediate family.
1: Yeah, um, but if I, you know, if, if science could figure out how to help people hit their head in the right way, <laughs> right. where <would> we just
0: <laughs> right, it's almost like uh, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind or something. It's like a yeah, but you know, it's not a permanent like wiping of the hard drive. It did return, yeah, but without that critical like shame factor, and yeah. you know, in a related way. I want to talk a little bit about the racial politics of Colombia because being in a family where you know you had a grandfather who was a curandero, a mother who was uh, also a curandera, this is tied to being mestizo. Yeah. Which is like I, I mean like I think you defined it like a there's a mestizo who is uh, like a, a Spaniard and a native yeah and then a castizo is the child of a mestizo and a spaniard like i I was trying to like like i was learning how to break all these things down Mm. and you know i think that part of the shame that maybe you were carrying had to do do with with the mestizo identity
1: yeah it's interesting between like north america and south america because i i think the colonization shares so much and then there's there's very uh specific differences and this is one of them that we were, you know, we were colonized by the Spanish who were Catholic and the U.S. was colonized by like Protestant people. And so for the Catholic people, the mixing blood wasn't, you know, forbidden or, you know, it wasn't kind of like, yeah. And I think for, for Protestant people, it was, or there was more of a divide, like you did not want to mix your blood with anybody else. So this is why in South America, we just have a lot of mixing happening. But one of the things that happened during colonization is that there was a caste system and that the Spanish created. And so it included that, you know, black people would be at the bottom and then, you know, Spanish people would be at the top and then everyone in between. So indigenous people would try to get to as white as possible. Because if you did, then you owed less taxes and you had more rights. So there was this like institutional reward system kind of like in place to try to make people become white. And yeah, so mestizo people are people that are that are mixed and then they have been mixed people for many generations. Right. So I, I think in the US when we say someone is mixed, we mean one one parent is this and the other parent is this. In South American, when you say Mestizo, that means that you have been, you know, somewhere down the line, you were indigenous and European, and then you just kind of continued marrying into like Mestizo families. So you're just, you've, we've just been Mestizo for like a long time. And with, uh, there was the, the Spanish Inquisition when mestizos were kind of trying to practice their indigenous belief systems or traditions they would be tortured or they would be kind of put in prison forced to kind of repent and it just kind of created a lot of secrecy and a lot of shame around that indigenous lineage and so it when when you look at South America now all of that lineage is still there it's just kind of hidden because we i think that that fear of whatever it was that was passed down to us, about being open or like you know judged or you know whatever it is, is still very much with us, but you know it's that that culture hasn't been destroyed, it's just kind of living on in a new way
0: and and often, like you say, in secret or in hiding or up in the mountains, you know there were people who preserved you know key elements of indigenous culture, like your grandfather, like your mother. Who did so, I don't know, I mean, how how much personal risk was there uh, as you were growing up or like in the time of your grandfather when he was working, was he doing so at personal risk to himself?
1: I think that there would be, there would just be social risk, it would just be kind of like looked down upon. Every once in a while, the paramilitary has like a, a social cleansing. And what they do is that they might go into a town and then kind of like round up prostitutes, you know, sex workers, curanderos, or like kind of like any kind of deviant person and then kill them. But that didn't happen too often. It was just more of a, you know, sometimes that would happen. Sometimes that would be a thing. But I think for for both my grandfather and my mother, it was just more of a social judgment risk. And I should say that, you know, of course, like in Colombia and all of South America, we still have, uh, we have like our, our tribes and we have like our indigenous people who are still kind of like living in their land. And then Mestizo people are kind of, yeah, kind of connected but disconnected from all of that. And it's it's almost like a, a culture of its own, but that comes from, from that historical place.
0: Okay. And so I think in addition to this, and you touched upon it just a second ago, there was the political instability of Colombia related to paramilitaries, the drug trade, the times of Pablo Escobar, all that stuff was kind of roiling Colombia as you were growing up in Bogota. And eventually in 1998, you and your family fled. And... I think what instigated this most specifically was the fact that you and your sister Jimena, is that how you pronounce it? Is it Jimena? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. You and Jimena were taken. Um, you were kind of set up by a girl that your mother had brought in to take care of. Mm -hmm. Um, she was in some trouble, but then she kind of, what she kind of sold you out to some people who were going to kidnap you, some gorillas and, yeah, you know, Jimena escaped, and then eventually the girl helped you escape, yeah.
1: she was kind of threatened into it. So it was like a a position of either you help us or you facilitate for us this kidnapping or we'll start to kill your family one by one. So it, yeah, it's like really just like such an impossible place to be in. And I, I mean, at the time and now I'm just like very surprised that she helped us, you know, that she, you know, she, I understand that she, you know, the part where she's like going through it, cause I don't know what I would do in that situation, but I understand that decision, and then that she then let us go or that she kind of like helped us get out of that is, is surprising to me
0: at great personal cost to herself after the fact which is part of the trauma you suffered is the knowledge that she was later raped by the guerrillas for helping to free you guys and your family fled i guess 1998 i don't know how much longer it was after this but this was certainly like the key thing that set the process in motion and i think one of the things you arrive at in this book is the degree to which you were traumatized both by that near kidnapping, but also all of the accumulated stresses of growing up in a country that had that kind of political instability. And I think of it now in the context of contemporary America, not that it's exactly the same, but we've certainly gone through some rocky times. I have kids and it's, you you sort of look at them and you wonder how much they're absorbing, you know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Like how much of the, the fear and the unrest and the, just the angst that's in the air, how much of that do they take in and what's it doing to them mm-hmm. and you write quote I know that I was a child who was often afraid poppy had taken care poppy is your father had taken care to find us a new place to live in the north of the city far from police newspaper and state buildings that could at any moment explode still guerrilla groups left car bombs in front of banks and ATMs as metaphorical attacks against capitalism And Pablo Escobar's paramilitaries left bombs in random places too, where their enemies lived or in stores and public buildings as routine acts of terror that forced the government to the negotiation table. I lived in a nest of worry. Did you know the degree to which you lived in a nest of worry as you were growing up, or was it something that you realized? It seems like it's something that came into focus later.
1: Yeah, I... For, for me at that time, it was just normal life and it's what we lived in and everyone, all my friends, you know, when I was a kid had the, you know, I think lived in that same nest of worry and we didn't kind of know to to see it at the time. I think just because it's it's normalized, you know, it's it's everyone's experience of that time So it becomes a little bit of like the emotional weather that you're living in. It wasn't until I came to the US and I just saw how different other people's upbringing was. And I just kind of like also started to notice just, you know, behaviors that I had around fear and just feeling insecure and could, you know, date them back to that time. I could date them back to like, oh, I, you know, yes. sometimes I have to like, and not anymore, but when I first arrived, if I I wanted to like write a story, sometimes I would kind of like be sitting down to write and then I would just be, feel very anxious and then have a need to go and see if the door was locked. So, you know, just things that are like small gestures that I didn't notice until I was here and I was like, oh, uh, nobody else behaves this way. There's what was the birth of that gesture for me. So it, yeah, so it, it was something that I understood much later.
0: And there were you know, and then there were also uh, manifestations in uh, like I think panic attacks. Your sister, yeah. your sister who you know went through a lot of the same stuff. You write about uh, her struggles with eating disorders, and you know you come to was it straight from Colombia to Chicago mm-hmm. like what was the what was the exact path that you traveled to immigrate to the states
1: so we initially came to we went to Venezuela initially and then we lived in Argentina for a little bit and then we moved back to Venezuela and then we were in Colombia briefly again and I finally was able to go to the US for for school for college and where did you go uh, to Chicago yeah to Columbia College in Chicago
0: okay and what was that like I mean coming from an upbringing in South America to suddenly be freezing your ass off in Chicago oh god
1: <laughs> I mean I so the coldest that I had ever experienced was maybe 50 degrees
0: uh-huh. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and when people told me that I needed to buy a coat I didn't believe them Cause I was like, why would I need a coat? (laughs) So even just like the concept of cold weather was just something that was not sinking in. And I remember that a point where the temperature started to drop below 50. And so each day then became the coldest day that I had ever experienced in my life. (laughs) And I went on this journey where I was, you know, trying to like save money, buy a coat, I went through like fur, leather. I was like, how do people like live in this weather? And at some point there were like icicles in my eyelashes. I was like, what is this? Like <laughs>
0: <laughs> Yeah, I grew up in Milwaukee, so I know yeah. that I know that weather. Uh I wanna get back to your family and this journey that you went on, both in the writing of this book, but also the journey you went on with your mother, because this is kind of an adventure story in a way. Yeah. Uh, First of all, just the dynamic within your immediate family with regard to magic. You know, your mother is a curandera and she has these gifts and it's very normal to her. That's the vibe that I get. You know, it's not like to her, it's just like the, it's the water that she swims in, you know? Yeah. And then your father is a skeptic. Yeah. Uh, Jimena. has some disdain for it, I think you write. And then you are kind of in this middle ground. Maybe you've tipped a little bit more in the direction of being a believer after the amnesia. Mm -hmm. But I think that like that was nice for me as a reader, because I think I was often checking my, you know, it's like I I was checking myself against it. I was like, wow, so wait, she just saw her mother's clone in the Kitchen at the dining room table doing tarot cards because your mother can appear in more than one place at once. You write fairly matter of factly, and I guess it was nice for me as a reader to know that like there was some skepticism even within your family. It wasn't like everyone everyone was on board with it, but your father also had experience with your mother's clone. Uh, Yeah, he'd he'd seen this clone before when he was traveling for work and stuff. So you just talk about that part of your family experience.
1: Yeah. This was another thing that was that felt very normal when when I was growing up. Um, I just grew up hearing like, yeah, your mother can appear into places at once, and my uncles and aunts and my grandmother would from time to time call our house when I was young, and I would answer, and they would be like, oh, I just saw your mother appear, and you know, they would tell me stories of like she was. I just I saw like a flash of her and she was walking down the hall or my grandmother would be like I just saw her sitting in a, in a chair for, for like a few seconds and then she was gone. So it was just like this thing where I am not sure what's happening but people are calling to say these things and I never, I, I didn't kind of believe it. I was like I'm not sure what's happening but like I don't think that she can appear in two places at once. And until this moment when I might have been like 10 and she was uh, in her bedroom and she was, my my mother was uh, in bed and she had a fever and I was making my way down to the first floor and I was walking down the stairs and then just, I saw across the way our our dining table and then I saw my mother sitting there and she was, yeah, reading like, uh, doing like a tarot spread and taking notes on a notebook. And I just, I sat down in shock, just, just staring at, you know, this.
0: Can, can, I, Knowing can, I, can, can I, I just want to stop you. Yeah. It looked just like her. Was there any like, like glow? Was she immaterial at all? Or was she just no, fully it was, solid?
1: It was fully solid. It, it it was like, I, you know, seeing someone, like the seeing her sitting at the table to the point where I was like, oh, did she just come down somehow? And if she better from like the fever because it it was it was her it looked like her like it looked like a a person like you know flesh and blood fully just my mother and everything and i just kind of had to like run back to her bedroom to check to see if she was there like what had happened and she was in and she was still in bed and she was like sweating and she was sleeping so i i like shook her and i was like i just saw you downstairs and her, her response was very, yeah, nonchalant, just like, oh yeah, 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 that happens to me, just let me sleep, like, I, I have a fever, I need to go to sleep. <laughs>
0: um, <laughs> yeah. That, that's wild, That's I mean, that's wild. And this is uh, a gift that your grandfather had as well, I believe he could appear, could he appear in two places at once as well? Did yeah.
1: He? And then and what happened with, with them growing up is that my grandfather would go away on these on these long trips where he would visit with other tribes or visit with other curanderos and he would be gone for months but his his patients would still came by the house and my mother would give them whatever treatment he had told her to kind of prepare for them and uh, some of them would stay over at the house and when she she would check in on them after she went to school and they would tell her like, oh yeah, your, your, your father came by and he like, he told me this or he gave me this medicine when he was away, so he wasn't there at all. So it was just, I yeah, I don't know what, how to explain or like what all that is. You know, I, th- I think that we can say, I you know, I think part of me is like you, yeah, there's like suggestion possibly could happen
0: can you do this?
1: I, but I, I don't know. I think that I just can I appear into places at once.
0: Yeah, is this actually no. you? Is this your? Is this your doppelganger talking to me right <laughs> now? <laughs> I'm curious to know how you assess your own relationship with these gifts, because it seems like some of it has been passed down to you. This amnesia is a strong connection. Like, how do you evaluate your own relationship to the magic?
1: Mm. I think that I. You know where I like to live is that that space of not knowing what it is. So, you know, even with my mother, you know, I, I also, like, for the memoir, I interviewed people on who had seen my grandfather move clouds. And to me, it's so interesting to not know what happened and to not be able to kind of prove or disprove it one way or another. But to just kind of, like, live in the, you know, living in the experience that somebody had of this thing that they can't quite explain or they don't quite know how to talk about. To me, that feels like the edge of, of perception that is so interesting. So I think with my my relationship to magic, I think that's where I try to dwell in. And I do listen to my mother more now when she tells me not to do something. <laughs> listen,
0: I am prepared to do whatever your mother tells me. If your mother told yeah. me to do something, I would I would be at attention, I think, if uh, she saw something. There was part of me that was like, there's kind of some fear. There's something kind of spooky about somebody being able to look like, what is it, the ghost veil? Like your mother yeah. will be out and she'll be like at the grocery or something and she'll see somebody with this ghost veil over their face and that means that this person is close to death. And uh, I think Tia Nahia yeah. had like a particular gift for this and like... I was like, oh my god, how terrifying. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's a it's that a little seems bit
1: terrifying. Yeah, and I, I think that um it it sounds, you know, like all of these these abilities are just like living in that world sounds magical. And then I think it's also terrifying. Like I wouldn't want actually to appear into places at once. Or I wouldn't want to have this this gift of, of being able to tell if somebody is close to dying, because what a you know what a heavy rela- uh, responsibility to
0: have. Yeah, I mean, like, do you tell them? Do you say something, or you're just like, well, can't stop it. <laughs> you know, like, don't know who they yeah. are. They're gonna they're gonna find out soon enough. You know that sort of thing. <laughs> Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Check planning for what's next and how to save for it. That's where Bank of America can help. So, I want to talk about the journey that you went on to disinter your grandfather. No, no, was his name, or that was his. Uh, that's is that grandfather in uh, in in Spanish it's, culture, Colombia? Yeah, or it's
1: actually, um, grandfather in Italian culture, but because we were colonized, that's like what we say.
0: Okay, so no, no, yeah. and nona were grandpa, you know, grandpa and grandma. No, no, was the curandero the man who could move clouds and in the grave that he was in you know people would not leave him alone essentially you know the constantly leaving papers not only like in his casket but at his grave itself like requesting favors from him in the yeah. year after like hey will you uh, you know will you help me heal from whatever injury or whatever romantic you know uh disappointment or whatever it is you know um people were constantly seeking miracles. And I think in some cases receiving them, like they would go to the grave and ask and things would happen. So that kind of information gets around, (laughs) you know? So (laughs) then it became kind of like a a thing. And maybe this was part of his impetus uh, in the hereafter for wanting to, to be moved. But I, I guess like if you could just give listeners an idea of what the, what the journey was like, you know, what that process is like of going down and disinterring No-No and how you made the decision to, uh, to put him somewhere else. Like, you know, it's one thing to disinter somebody, but then what are you going to do with the remains? You know, where, where is yeah. he going?
1: Yeah. Um, this was a part of the, of, the, of the story that, you know, as I was living it was just hilarious to me because I, just like the, the from the moment that we were like, okay, we're going to disinter your grandfather because there's been three dreams. <laughs> to me, that was just like, oh my God, this is the best thing. Like, I just knew that, that that story turn was like so good.
0: You mean like as a writer?
1: As a writer, I was like, this is such a good thing to happen and right. to, you know, to write right. about. Um, like such a good plot point. And we, we arrived there without knowing how you disinter someone or or knowing what we were gonna do after. And one of my, and it just, it all happened like organically, but one of my aunts went to check on his grave because she started to wonder like, what is this dream about and why does he want to be disinterred? And when she got there, she found that people had been still uh, living, leaving prayers um, and sucking them into the grass of his grave. And Miraculous graves are not unusual in Colombia and so it it doesn't have to be like a curandero but sometimes it's even like men of science like if a doctor passes away for some reason like if if somebody asks a miracle of this you know doctor who's like a man of science and probably like would would be horrified to find out that people were you know asking supernatural things of them and if, you know, if a miracle is conceded, then it just becomes a miraculous grave. So it, it happens a lot and it's not um, uncommon. But we, yeah, we started to think that, that that was the reason why he wanted to be moved. And it it is this kind of trying to translate what these dreams meant and trying to figure out from like what we could observe in our lives and being there. That led us to deciding, like, how we wanted to to do it. And I remember when we when they like brought the the body up, um, and it was just kind of a a skeleton and wearing like the suit that he was mm-hmm. married in. I had always thought that I would be able to see like the little papers that people stuck in his casket when he was buried because people were leaving prayers then and, you know, requests for miracles then. And all of it was just, it was like black paper. Like it was just, you know, soiled and it was just like kind of like curled and like half disintegrated. And there was just like no way for me to, to find out what the requests were. But I did kind of through the, through our time there, like one of my missions was to try to find out who or like someone who had been leaving requests for miracles, and at the very end of the book, I did find someone.
0: And who had? I mean, I guess I won't spoil it, but yeah, this yeah. stuff, you know, it's common in Colombia. This is not just specific to your grandfather, like you say. It happens, uh, I don't know, somewhat frequently. Yeah,
1: somewhat frequently. Yeah, there's, there's like miraculous graves. I, I read a whole book about it. Um, there's like miraculous graves all over. There's one that's in the main cemetery of Bogota that's very famous, um, and it belonged to a sex worker, who used to sell votive candles at the entrance of the cemetery, and she died, during an eclipse, and then the uh one of his, one of her friends. Lighted a candle and just made a request. Like I, um, he wasn't doing well. And when he left the cemetery, like he found, I think money on the ground, and then he bought a lotto ticket with that money and then won the lottery. Right. And so then that that becomes like now this is a famous like miraculous grave, and people like go to it. It's like it's so popular that the cemetery of Bogota had to like move that grave specifically out further. Because they were getting too many people um, coming to, to leave things there.
0: Sure. Yeah. I mean, you got to wonder, I wonder what the hit rate is, you know? Like, you can't, <laughs> can't accommodate everybody. <laughs> True. <laughs> Even in the afterlife. They're yeah. like,
1: this. yeah, this is too popular.
0: <laughs> so your grandfather, I think a question that I had, and forgive me if you tell us this in the book, if I missed it or forgot it, but... Who taught him to be a corindero?
1: Oh yeah, I kind of mentioned it, but I don't go into it too much. But his his father taught him.
0: Okay, because it's a it's a you know there's a lot to know. You know you've got to have a really uh, intricate understanding of the flora uh, of the you know of the what do you call it the cordillera like the mountains okay. and the its surrounding regions. You know in uh, I don't know all over Colombia, but it's a lot of plant knowledge. It's a lot of intuition, a lot of it's just like natural gift and being able to what read people or understand what's troubling them in some uh, deep way, but when it comes to actually providing like medicines it's it's a lot of like flowers and leaves and mixtures and right
1: yeah, yeah, and I think it's also i think like the, the personality type is also important, so someone who You know has has kind of like a they're like a rooted person or someone who's kind of strong in some way can talk to people is interested in people is curious about people and then i think whatever that is when you're when you're uh, treating someone that you can help them but not become emotionally lost in the problem that that person is having um so i think all of those were the were the requirements. And for my, my grandfather's father, he was also taught by his dad. So this was like a patrilineal line. And it would be like the, the, the father of the family would like decide among his sons, like who has the correct makeup for this, like who is the kind of correct son to that, you know, who, who could have like the, the best disposition to do this kind of thing. And then they would, you know, choose the son and then they would start to teach them all the stuff.
0: Does your mom teach you stuff?
1: Not really. And I don't really ask and I I think that the I the the part of the disposition where it's like you you um need to have this ability to like not get lost in people's problems. That is not me. <laughs> you know, like if, if somebody started to tell me about like their heartbreak or just kind of be, you know, sympathize with them too much or just, you know, be, I, th- I think in a way just like take on like whatever emotional tenor of what it is that they're telling me. And I think this is why I'm a writer and not, <laughs> not you know, meant to be like a, a healer in that way.
0: Yeah. But I mean, I, I don't know. There's like, I, I see like a line of connectivity between healer and writer And, you know, you're like the family storyteller. Not just your immediate family, but your family line, you know. Uh, Yeah. And I like to believe your grandfather in the hereafter recognized that, which is why he arrived in your mother's dream and was like, gave his blessing to the book, right?
1: Yeah, yeah. I do see a connection between what I saw her do growing up and what I do now. Because the part of divination was just like she was listening for voices or she was kind of having these conversation conversations with like unseen things I think writing is is a little bit like that I'm not literally you know hearing things but I am you know trying to connect or trying to listen to a void. and so that feels very similar and the way that stories can be like medicine is something that I that I do believe and each time that I've written a book I think that I've arrived somewhere better but you know but I I just I really believe in the way that stories can guide us into thought into feeling into just being and how that can be like an investigation or that can be like healing or that can be you know going deep somewhere so I do I do think of it that way too
0: yeah that's well said and have you in publishing this book i'm curious to know like what's the like how have you experienced reader response especially readers who are coming at it from you know across this cultural divide
1: it's been really interesting i've i've heard from readers who are connecting in the way that you're connecting and just like experiences of you know the parts where you come to like the edge of perception and, and things seem strange. Um, I also heard from a reader who, who told me that he was an ambulance driver and that he's he seen like a lot of people die and a lot of people kind of like be in the middle and die and come back. And he was telling me about how there's there's something very tactile about that how you can kind of like tell when somebody kind of goes away or you can tell when somebody is still there. And so he was he was connecting to it all like through this lens of his experience of, of driving ambulances and um, helping people. I th- I think I've been surprised by the openness. I, I think I was expecting more resistance and I haven't quite seen that, but I, I did in writing the book. I. And th- you know, this is my understanding as well: is that we, we all have these experiences, and then we just have different names for it. You know, so in in Colombia, we might say like this is a ghost or this is an apparition, and then the, in the U.S., someone might might say like I'm having hallucinations and I need to go see a doctor and then I, I need medicine to control this, right? So I, I think that it for me, it's because I'm I feel like I'm in the middle between the two cultures. For me, it's just like a a different language thing. And I know that something different happens when you're in one or the other because your actions and your understanding of it changes.
0: So there are a couple moments in the book, and I don't want to spoil too much, so I don't know if I'm going to name them. But there (laughs) are a couple of moments in the book where I think you very specifically say, my mother said something. It's like a prayer or some specific words, but you don't tell us what they are. Uh You sort of lied, you know, it's like, and I'm wondering why, I guess this is like, did she read it and say, you can't share this publicly? Uh,
1: She didn't, she didn't read it, but you know, part of me, part of her agreeing to me writing this book was that she had veto power on anything that I would write. And so, yeah, we just had long conversations about, what I wasn't allowed to share, because then it's just protecting knowledge that has been secret for a long time. Or, you know, sometimes we would have conversations about like something that happened and whether I should write about it. And we would talk about who is, you know, the silence around this story, like who is it protecting? And is it actually, you know, protecting you know, like uh, abuse or is it, you know, like who who is this protecting or is it actually protecting like a victim of something? So we had very long conversations around that. And the, when it came to parts where it was just like specific knowledge about how something is done or like the words that you might say to do something, yeah, that was something that she was, she said for sure, like, don't, we don't, um, we don't share these.
0: Okay. And of course I was reading, I was like, please tell me, <laughs> I want to know the tricks. <laughs> yeah. You know, I think maybe, um, uh, before I let you go, I, I, we should talk about craft. Uh, we, we didn't get to everything that you cover in the book, but because the book is such a wild ride and because it's so dense, you know, there's so much, there's so much family history and cultural history and personal history and a sense of personal and relational investigation that, you know, I know as a writer is tough. You know, it was a big challenge. Uh, I want to hear you talk about creative strategies that you undertook in the writing of the book to overcome difficulties. I saw, I saw on Twitter where you were kind enough to share uh, you know some of the techniques that you used. You know it was like building what, like flashcards or post-it notes, and you sort of built this huge chain. You know where you you sort of laid the book out visually uh, to give yourself a real sense of it. But you just share with my listeners uh, like some of the things that you did to help you along your way.
1: Yeah, I think that you know as I was getting ready to travel back and visit to my grandfather my initial understanding of the book was that it would be about healers and that it would be about my mother, my grandfather, the amnesia part. And I I thought even then that I would start with, like, whatever the disinterment experience was, and then I would end with, you know, whatever we did with the body, which at the time we didn't know what what that was. And as I started to kind of... um, lived out the story and even later as i was drafting it just kind of started to get bigger and bigger and i had this realization that it if it was a story about healers that it also had to be a story about healing and that if there was going to be like a physical unearthing of a body that there also needed to be like a an emotional unearthing of stories and then stories maybe that we don't tell and kind of like an investigation of silence and you know what, when is silence appropriate and when is it not, and what does silence create in someone who is asked to keep silence. So those were all the, it just kind of started to get out of hand a little bit as I was drafting, and I wrote through the, through the draft, and what I did is I kind of like unraveled everything, and I just made this document, and I was trying to keep track of ideas in the book, So there were like different, I I call them like poetic arguments that I was making. And so one of them had to do with water or one of them had to do with healing. And one of them had to do with like a mirror. And these were all symbols for me that allowed me to explore um, some of the questions that the book was carrying. Like, what is amnesia? And, you know, like when you know, when you see yourself in a mirror, like, who are you? Or like, what is, you know, the mirror a symbol and how is the mirror created? So I kind of like made these individual idea storylines and I printed them out and I cut each one individually. And so I was just sitting, I had, I got an Airbnb and I was just like sitting surrounded by all of these like scraps of paper. And wait, I wait, wait, wait!
0: Why did you get an Airbnb? Did I miss something?
1: Because I needed, I needed to like be a, I needed to like be in a different place. I just needed to be kind of like alone, in order to do this kind of thinking. Sure. And so, like over the period of two days, I just like sat on the floor in this Airbnb, and was just kind of taking a, you know, like a scrap of paper that would be a line, which would be kind of like a plot, um, like idea storyline. You know, like, when does this idea of the self, what, when should I start with this idea of the self? And I just started to just put it together and, like, tape them as I was going. And so I, like, for the for the structure of the book, that's how I did it. I actually just physically sat down and just made a new, a new order for it.
0: And that stayed, more or less? Like, did it, I mean, I guess with some adjustments, but that, that set you on your way? So...
1: Yeah, that that set me on my way. At some point, I was, I was writing, and then my mom, mom was like, what are you doing? And I took a photo of what my desk was at the time, and I told her, like, oh, I'm just, like, reordering my memoir. And she told me, um, this is wrong. <laughs> and then she sent me back, like, the photo that I had sent her. She just, she wrote on two different lines, and she was like, switch this one to like this this place in the story and switch this one to this other place in the story. She doesn't speak English and she doesn't read books. So she was just like from her, I don't know, witchy sense, she was like, these two things need to be switched. And at the time I was having like these com- this conversation with my editor about how the structure wasn't quite working And when i did what my mother said i was like oh my god that solves all the problems (laughs) and i
0: the moral of the story is listen to your mother
1: yeah so Mm -hmm. that's how the that was all the yeah the structure and the craft behind that
0: so the last thing i want to talk with you about is being bilingual or maybe you speak even more languages but I'm astonished by your mastery of English as a native Spanish speaker. I know you studied English in school in Colombia, so you had a foundation before you moved here. But you really have complete control of English. Um, I barely have complete control of English and don't speak a second (laughs) language fluently. So I'm just like, geez, can you mean can you be? uh, You know, you got to be good at two of them. You know, so I. I want to hear you talk about that and any challenges maybe that English presents to you uh, or maybe like different freedoms or something. Maybe maybe you're stronger. I know there are cases where writers are writing outside of their native tongue and they actually quite enjoy it in some ways or something. Yeah. They really fall in love with the language. Uh, so why don't we start there?
1: Yeah, I think that I what I really loved about English was that no one in my family could read it. I guess my sister could read it but like my parents couldn't read what I was writing and I loved that it was because I would have if I wrote anything I just feel like my mother would find it and then tell me that she had found it and read it.
0: <laughs> right, right. So
1: this was just like the ultimate you know nobody can read this. And there there was something like really fun for me of trying to understand the language and then seeing how Part of the culture and the worldview is embedded in the language, and I think realizing that was is just like really what made me fall in love with languages, and I think with writing, with the idioms. Like there's so much of how we think and what we think about life. They're just kind of like hidden in the way that we that we put something, or the way that we talk to each other, or like that relational language is so fascinating. I think it, one of the things that I've recently noticed about English is this language that we have about being in relationship with each other, which has to do with the economy. So is this, it like, the question is like, is this worth my time? Is he worth it? You know, it's so interesting to me that that's the relational language. Um, so, but I, I think that you can only kind of really see those things when you're an outsider, because it's so different to what you're used to or to how you would say something. So I really love being in the middle, because even speaking in English and writing in English, when I encounter something in Spanish, I can have that clarity about our language as well. And I can have that clarity about like, oh, this says so much about how we interact with each other and how we interact with the world.
0: Oh yeah and you wouldn't um, and you wouldn't know if you didn't have something to compare it to.
1: Right, cuz it's just it would just be like the it would just be like how you say something and you wouldn't have that ability to kind of step out or you know you might have that ability but i i think it just requires a level of amazement and maybe like a, a level of uh hearing something as if it was new that allows you to to hear it.
0: Uh did you tra- is there a Spanish edition of this book? Do you translate your own work or do you write a, a version in Spanish?
1: There is. There's a Spanish translation and somebody else does it and then I, I take a look and then I, if needed, I'll make some language adjust- adjustments. I don't think that I could do it myself just because when I'm writing, I, I try to be actually like in the... Like a two consciousness in the middle between languages. And so I do write from this place of hearing things in Spanish and then trying to make the English sound like Spanish or like transliterating. And I just do a lot of back and forth in my mind as i'm as I'm drafting as and'm as I'm creating um, sentences. I'm always trying to push the grammar in English so that it sounds a little bit like a Spanish construction. So for me to then undo all of that and then just write it in Spanish feels impossible. I don't quite know how to how to go about that. Like, would I? Does that mean that I would make the Spanish sounds like English? Like, I just don't.
0: <laughs> right. No. I don't know what it would be. That makes sense, but it kind of surprises me. I hadn't thought of it that way. You know, I was thinking, oh yeah, she would definitely want to do the translation herself or would have ideas, but it. It's also got to be nice to have somebody coming at it with like fresh perspective. And like, again, I have envy the fact that you can can do this in multiple languages. Do you speak any other languages or is it just Spanish and English?
1: I, I speak like a tiny bit of French, but that's it.
0: Okay. Okay. Yeah. Well, I really enjoyed the book and uh, I applaud you for it because it just it covers so much ground and... It deals with so many things that are difficult to write about: family stuff, supernatural stuff, cross-cultural stuff. You know, you gave yourself a big challenge, and you saw you saw it through. <laughs> so, I imagine you're feeling some relief and uh, hopefully a bit of um, like happiness and like a touch of pride in having gotten it over the line. So, kudos to you, and thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me again.
1: Thank you, Brad. It was so lovely to be here again and have this conversation with you. I just, I really enjoyed myself.
0: And I guess I should ask, are you now going to go wander a cemetery in San Francisco (laughs) 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 after talking to me? and, And I never got, I guess, the story when you did go to the cemetery here in Hollywood. Did you... Like what was the experience? Like, did you see Johnny Ramone walking? I think. Walking around?
1: Do you know what I? What I love to do is anytime that I'm in a new place, I I love to visit the cemetery first. And it's just something that I do always. So, like if I if I'm on vacation, I might go to the cemetery first. And Why? I think that I just I I really get this like a sense of history from it, and I just kind of somehow it it feels more interesting to me to have like an initial, initial connection with the place with how, you know, the cemetery is laid out. And I'm really fascinated by how different cemeteries are depending on where you are. Like the ones in Mexico are like very colorful. And as you're wondering the cemetery, there might be like a, you know, just like a pink and blue grave. And then you might see like a little sculpture of like a, a soccer ball. And so even it just like the graves tell you like what the, what the person kind of like loved in their life. And the ones in the US are more kind of like stark and um, you know, there's very beautiful, but like stark. So you know, so it's just like such to me, it's just fascinating because it, it says so much about how we, how each place relates to their dead it tells me, yeah, it, I just feel kind of connected to the place in a in a different way, or, or maybe like a little bit of a timeless way. It's San Francisco has a great pet cemetery, which is from the fifties. Where um, is
0: that? Where is that?
1: It's like in the Presidio. Okay. And so there's there's all of these little graves, and there's one, you know, there's like bunnies and like parrots and then the the way that you know what people would write on the graves is just you know it's just like encountering like so many stories that are so kind of like meaningful and and dramatic, so yeah, so i I just kind of like wandered the Hollywood cemetery, looked at some graves.
0: did you see the peacocks?
1: saw the peacocks, <laughs> yeah, and then I think i I think I saw friends after
0: after okay. that okay, great, well. <laughs> I feel like we've come full circle. I've been on this <laughs> been on this journey with you over these past two episodes, and I honestly I am glad to get this conversation on the record to go along with the first one because I believe, like to an unusual degree, they pair well or something, or they feel like one like it's one can so one continuous true. thing.
1: Yeah, because I was still drafting the memoir. Yeah, I love that.
0: All right. Well, it's good to see you. Congratulations. Are you working on anything new? Not to put pressure on you, but I always ask.
1: I've been been working on some stories, short stories. And I have like 10 stories started and I don't know where anything is going, but it feels very fun and exciting.
0: Well, talk to your mother. (laughs) Let her give her your your input or her input. (laughs) And I'm sure it all will be well.
1: Yeah, I will do that. (laughs) All right, Ingrid.
0: uh, My thanks again. Congratulations.
1: Thank you so much.
0: Okay, folks, there we have it. That is Ingrid Rojas Contreras, and her new memoir is called The Man Who Could Move Clouds. It is available now from Doubleday. Go get your copy right away. You can find Ingrid on the internet at ingridrojascontreras.com. You can follow her on Twitter. Her handle there is at Ingrid underscore Rojas underscore C. She's also on Instagram. One more time, the book is called The Man Who Could Move Clouds. It is superb. Read it. The Other People podcast is offered freely every single episode of this show, almost 800 at this point and counting. All of it is available to listeners free of charge. It's a listener-supported show, so if you like this program, If you listen regularly, if you get something from it, then I hope you will consider supporting it. You can do that for as little as $1 per month over at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. That's patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash otherpplpod. You can get stuff. There are different tiers, different levels of support as you move up the scale. You can get a t-shirt, a tote bag, a coffee mug, a book club subscription, that sort of thing. I'll even write you a postcard. Patreon.com slash other PPL pod. If you would like to read my new novel, it's out there. It's called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything. Trade Paperback ebook and also an audiobook edition that is narrated by me. So check it out if you are so inclined. It's called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything. The Other People Podcast has its own YouTube channel. You can follow the show on Twitter at otherppL or on Instagram at otherppl.podcast. The other People podcast has its own app. It too is free. So be sure to go get the app wherever you get your apps. It's a great way to listen. And I think I think that's it trying to think of what I, what I've forgotten. Have I forgotten anything? Oh, next week's guest, I believe is Nada Alec, author of the new story collection, the debut story collection, Bad Thoughts. Very much looking forward to that. So stay tuned. Thanks for listening. Go get Ingrid's memoir, The Man Who Could Move Clouds. All right. All right. All right. right.